So good. Clearly people, uh, it was, uh, you guys can thank Kim because she did awesome. The highlight of your morning. Clearly the announcements, I can tell everybody's so excited about that. Um, last service, so you could tell it was 9 o'clock, you know, obviously 9 o'clock service. And it was clear that people in America favor 10 o'clock services more than anything else. The time change and everything else, it was just very clear. Like it was jam-packed in here. People were like, 10 o'clock is awesome, which would have, you know, people who got the time, you know, it was like great for them. And it was jammed, and it is jammed in here this morning. It's great to have you guys with us. Really glad that you're here. Um, uh, I should say this before, well, I should say this first. I, um, I, I got some comments already about my awesome bracelets that I'm wearing. If you have an elementary school kid, you have these in your house. And your dog has eaten all kinds of rubber bands, and your kids have cried over not being able to do a particular kind of thing. If you don't have elementary school kids, let me just tell you, um, my, my son made me a little bracelet, and I was like, okay, great, my son's into the crafts, that's great. And then my daughter made me like a super fat, huge one. She, and they were like, you got to wear them, right? And I'm like, yeah, got to wear them. And I was a little self-conscious about it. And I saw on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, Pearl Jam was the musical guest, and Eddie Vedder had these on. And I was like, I'm cool. It's fine. Everything's cool. I'm insecure about this, but I'm cool now. So anyway, just want to clear that up right away. Um, if you're new with us and you're trying to find a church home or you're kind of investigating some things, you, um, hopefully you caught, you caught already that this is a group of people. This is a place where people, you know, don't have everything together. This is a place where um, people are asking really tough questions about their life and that nobody in here has all the answers. And um, if, you, if that's at least in some way kind of attractive to you, these are people trying to follow Jesus and love each other, and none of us does that perfectly. But if that's in some way attractive to you, even in our attempt to kind of get down that road, we are, you're so in the right place, um, we're, and we're so glad that you're with us today. And as we're starting this series, we're, we're kind of starting this series, as we're continuing on in our series called The Outsider's Guide to Jesus, I've loved some of the responses I've been getting from some of you guys and talking to you and being introduced to some of your friends who you're bringing to church because it's a perfect time to be able to bring your friends during this series. Because the book of Luke, as we're looking at it, is essentially an outsider's guide to this person of Jesus. Luke, the book of Luke, is sponsored by a guy named Theophilus who's looking at and saying, is all this stuff about Jesus really true? The book of Luke's written in around 60 AD, and you have... At that time, people who are committing themselves to Jesus are being fed to lions. So they better be absolutely sure that this is a for real thing because they're giving their lives over for stuff. And so Theophilus is saying, Luke, is this, I want you to create some kind of picture for me of what actually is true about Jesus. And so he does. And at the same time, you have to think of the other people who are going to read this, this account of Jesus' life. These are people whose grandfathers and fathers and, grand, you know, what? these are people, their, their parents or grandparents walked with Jesus. And so they're saying... Are these just stories grandpas tell me about a guy who did some things, or is this for real? And so this is what this is about. If you're investigating Jesus, if you've never really decided about who he is, or you're just kind of checking things out about him, uh, this is a great series for you to be here. If you've been in church for a long time, if you've walked with Jesus for a while, but yet you have some questions, maybe you've acquired some things in your walk with Jesus that you're like, I'm not totally, is it, did he really do that stuff? Perfect to kind of recrystallize who Jesus is for you in your mind. So um, really excited about today. Let's do this. Before we get into it, let's pray together and then we'll, we'll start off today's message. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful. Grateful that you've gathered us here. We're grateful that we got an extra hour of sleep. We're grateful, Father, that we get to come and to celebrate with you. And we know, Father, as grateful as we are, that people from all different sort of phases of their life have walked into here, into this room. Some people, Father, have um, come and they're in danger of losing heart. Father, we know that people um, walk in here, some of us get up in the morning and we work really hard at putting on the exterior that everything is okay. And yet we know that we're dying inside. Father, others of us um, are, are, we tried as much as we might to try to hide what's going on really in our lives. We really aren't real successful with that. And we walk in at the end of our rope, just wondering if there's any possibility that things might be different. And for us, pain is right on the surface. For others of us, we walk into this place and there's a sense of victory in our, our past week or our past season of life, and we feel like celebrating, and yet we still have this lingering reality that says not everybody in here feels that way. And so whether we're in the midst of having come through or we're experiencing the reality that other people around us are in, the, at danger, of, in danger of losing their sort of, danger of losing heart, we ask God that you would meet us here because we need you. And because you have the power to restore and to redeem things that are broken. And so for just a moment, Father, we ask as we kind of customarily do, we ask that you would speak to us in stillness and in quiet, knowing, God, that in a world full of a ton of noise, it is often difficult to hear you speak. And so, Father, we pause 
that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us, to our own souls. Lord, we believe that you can restore. We believe that when we don't have all the answers, you still walk with us and that you draw near to us. Would that be made abundantly clear to us today, that you are with us in our midst, even when we don't have all the, all the answers and all the explanations? Because we all are in danger at some level of losing heart. So God, minister it to us today. In your name, amen. Um, hey, if you want to follow along, we are st- we're just inching our way through the book of Luke as we kind of approach Christmas off in the distance here. But um, if you want to open your Bible, we're in Luke chapter 1 still. We'll kind of jump a little bit around today. But if you want to pull out your outline, you can follow along um, there as well. But let me just catch you up a little bit. Last week was the second of two angel stories, which are intended to be uh, juxtaposed to, for contrast to comparison. And so to give you the first one, it's, if this is a couple weeks ago. Uh, Zechariah is a guy who is a priest, and he is a righteous person by all accounts. He, is, he works in the temple, and it's his turn to be in the temple to you know, conduct some important sort of temple stuff, which is basically he's supposed to light some incense and then bless the people. And while he's in there, um, uh, an angel, Angel Gabriel, appears to him and tells him a few things. Zechariah, which you should also know, is married to a person named Elizabeth. Elizabeth is old. And both of them have been wanting a kid. Because in the ancient world, you cannot be a righteous person and yet also not have children. These, the, the, not having children was a sign of God's curse upon you. And so people were like, well, they do everything right. And he's from the right family. And his wife's from the right family. And they're pretty much doing everything right. But there's something about them. There's an asterisk next to their righteousness. Because they don't have any kids. And the angel appears as Zechariah was in the temple and says, surprise, you're going to have a kid. He's going to be the one who prepares the way for the Lord. And Zechariah is so excited, he says, well, how can this possibly be? Give, how will I know this to be true? In other words, give me a sign, because we're old. My wife and I, we're old, and we don't, however it works with angels, I don't know whatever it is, but we're old, it's not happening. And the angel says, I'll give you a sign. You don't get to talk for nine months. And so this is what happened. That's, that's God's gift to his wife, Elizabeth, because, you know, Zechariah, I'm not, you know, all of a sudden he's quiet. Right, so that's that. Now, that's the first angel encounter. The second one which we read last week, we walked, we walked through last week, was this. Mary, who's this person, this little, this like junior high age girl from a trailer park campground, essentially, in Nazareth. Uh, the same angel meets her and says, you're super favored. God has got his favor upon you. And she's like, well, what are you talking about? How can I be favored? I'm from this trailer park and nobody really knows who we are. And we find out then that she's about, she's going to um, have not only the way one prepares the Lord, but um, she's going to have the Lord's Messiah. She's going to give birth to God in the flesh, walking around with everybody. And she says, how's this going to be? I'm a virgin. And, you know, she gets this really clever answer, which is essentially the Holy Spirit's going to take care of it. And she's like, okay. Now, you have then these two stories, which are designed to do a couple things. One is to establish a motif. One of them is this, that there is a, um, there is what we see over and over again, that the people who you would expect to understand and anticipate God's arrival in the person of Jesus, those people who are religious, who work in the temple, who have all the right family pedigree, who do all the right things. All of those people who are supposed to see and understand, those people miss it. And those people who are out in the margins, the forgotten, the poor, the lost, the lonely, those people, they manage to see Jesus and they manage to catch God at work much more quickly. And so Zechariah misses it when an angel appears to him and says, good news. He kind of fumbles that up a little bit. And Mary, who's this peasant girl, has a different encounter with Jesus. Now, as we read this story, as we encounter it, something kind of gets lost in this story, especially as we get closer and closer to Christmas. We hear about Mary, we have our nativity scene in our, you know, own little house, and whatever else it is that we do. And if you're like me, my, you know, like our dog bites things on the nativity, which is like a total sacrilege, I guess, you know, like, oh my gosh, put the baby Jesus back in the manger. And my kids would, we had a Fisher Price one with the kids took in the bath, which I was like, I don't know if we're allowed to do that or not, but there they were, you know, but we kind of have an impression about this whole scenario that I want to I give us another way of framing it a little bit. And the best way to do that is to illustrate that through The Price is Right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to play a game of Price is Right. 
and all you have to do is decide whether it's by, it's by voting, uh, which is higher and which is, you know, whether or not you think the price is higher or lower than the price I give you. You guys got it? Not too tough. You guys got it? Really simple. Okay, here we go. The first item is this one right here. It's a home gym by Body Solid with super handsome guy in slick hair and tank top. Here's what we find. Okay, here's what I want you to know. Is the price of this gym, home gym, higher or lower than $750? Higher or lower? No, don't yell out your answer. Don't yell out. Stop yelling out. You guys, the last service figured this out. It's a show of hands, okay? So, Ken, okay, stop yelling it out. How many people say lower than $750? There you go. A couple people. Curtis, a man. You guys won yesterday. Good job. Okay, good. Uh, and then uh, how many guys say higher? The actual retail value, actual retail cost is $887.16 for that super awesome home gym. Uh, okay, good. So how many, guys are, how many guys are one for one? Okay, good. Strangely, the same people raise their hand for higher. It's weird how that works. Okay, here we go. Uh, next, a Kenmore front-loading washer with a digital something on the top right. Is the actual retail price higher or lower than $650? Okay, ready, Gary? Think about it. Ready, go. Who says higher than $650? Who says lower? The actual retail cost of the Kenmore front-loading washer is $599.88. Who's two for two? Okay, you guys are still in it. And again, we, the whole goal of this is so to you to for you to establish a little bit of a level of elitism with the people around you. We just want to create a little, get you just feeling like I'm better than those people around me. And I knew it all along. Okay, good. That's all I want. That's the goal of our church. Here we go. <laughs> okay, lastly, here we go. This is, I never heard this word before until I started watching The Prices Right when I was a little kid. This is called a dinette set. I'd never heard that. And they're always by Broyhill. Whoever Broyhill is, they make them. But this is not Broyhill because I couldn't find it. But anyway, <laughs> not that you would know. But anyway, is the cost of this seven-piece dinette set higher or lower than $900? Who says higher? Who says lower? Actual retail cost of this seven-piece dinette set is $763. Why is, that, why is that amazing to some of you? Like, wow. Is that a deal or is that, is that terrible? I don't know whether that's... I, we buy all our furniture at Ikea. I don't know. Everything's like, really? It's that expensive? Um, now, the secret to winning and being successful at the price is right is being able to know the cost of stuff. That you're able to look at something and go, I get how much that would cost. And what we see at the beginning of this whole, you know, example, this whole story of Jesus is that there is a person who is faced with a yes that she says that has an incredible cost attached to it. And what I want to do is I want to go back and look at this person, this story, it's not a real mystery, it's Mary, but I want to go back and look at her story, and I want you to see the cost of the yes that's upon her when she says yes. All right, so here's where we go. We'll go back looking at last week's message a little bit. Here's what it is. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 31, we'll start there. You will conceive, this is the angel Gabriel talking to her, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus, which means God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation is what that means. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, meaning he's the descendant of this person David, who is the most favorite king of all of Israel. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary says, verse 34, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be able to, unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Now there's the story. Mary, who's this person who's not expecting to have any kind of, you know, she's the least likely person, at least in her own mind, and in most everybody's mind, that, they would have, that she would have an encounter with God himself, who would say, you know, you know, it's particularly in this manner, but not only encounter with an angel who says, it's going to be through you that God's rescue plan for the entire world will be sort of, you'll have a critical, will be initiated in you. Wow, really? No one would have thought that. And you have all of these great things about Jesus. This throne's going to go on forever. He's in the line of David. All of these kinds of things are kind of adding up here. And then she says this line. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. In other words, she says, yes. Okay, let it be so. I'm excited about this. This seems like a good plan. Remember, Mary's junior high age. 
you know, typically we have in our head that she's, you know, she's a young bride, like 23, you know. She's probably a junior higher. And I want to do this. I think what we kind of don't realize is that she's so, we kind of forget she's an actual human being. That we have our stories about her, we have our nativity scenes like we talked about, and we forget that she's an actual human being, that somehow or another, the story happened through her and around her, but never actually to her. And I want to do this. I want to go, let's take a look at what's actually at stake when she says yes. Back up a little further into verse 26 in the same chapter. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now you have doubly, you have that she's a virgin there. We kind of get that. She's a virgin, and that virgin's name was Mary. And she's married to this, or engaged to be married to this person named Joseph, who's a descendant of David. First thing you have to catch is, yes, it says that she's a virgin twice. Second thing you have to catch is this. That... She is engaged. Now, when we talk about engaged, some translations will have the word engaged to Joseph. Other translations, this one has the word pledged to be married. But that doesn't really capture what this actually is about. When people are engaged, it's kind of like, it's kind of like dating 2.0, and then we're almost ready. And you can still kind of back out of it if it doesn't work out. There's the ring. In fact, you know, our, our sound tech, a guy named Mikey, got engaged this past week, and so we're all giving him a hard time, and, you know, it's really cool. But, but you know, there's this, you can kind of go, if it doesn't work out, like, I don't think I want to be married, and you can kind of take the ring off, and hopefully you don't throw it back at the guy, but there's a, like, I think we're, it's not going to work out, and it's a sad moment, and whatever. But this is much different. When two people are betrothed in the ancient Near East, here's how it works. You have a, 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 an arrangement that's sort of initiated by the mothers of the two people, and they kind of go and figure out, do we, do our families share in the same status? In other words, is this kind of make, is this the right matchup in terms of family and shame and honor? Are we all kind of on the same page? Then the dads are actually the ones who kind of make the final arrangements. But there's a bride price to be paid. And if, after they initiate this betrothal period, which is about 12 to 18 months long, the girl, the bride-to-be, will learn how to be a bride, I mean, learn how to be a wife from her own mother. And the, the groom-to-be, this, this guy, will go and he will build on an addition to his father's house, waiting then for it to be ready. Well, he'll go and get the bride and they'll have a big celebration. It'll be a big wedding. But the in-between time, it is as if they are already married. Meaning, it's not like they can just say, I don't think this is going to work out. It's as if they're already married. The only way that you get to be out of that engagement period is if one of the people dies or one of them commits adultery. Now, Mary is this 13, 14-year-old girl. She has an encounter with an angel who tells her, you're going, to, you're going to give birth to God's Redeemer for the whole world. Now she has to have a couple conversations. Hey, Mom and Dad. Good news. I'm pregnant. You're, four, you're 13, 14 years old. I know. But don't worry. Joseph and I have been faithful to our commitment to purity. And I haven't gone anywhere else. And <laughs> the angel appeared to me. And he told me that the Holy Spirit has you know, come upon me and I am going to give birth to Jesus. <laughs> God saved. Isn't that great? <laughs> now, parents hear all kinds of bizarre things from their junior high girls. There's no question about it. But that has to be one where it's like, you know, of all the things. I mean, you know, I know some of your parents are junior highers and you just have that like... <laughs> I don't know what to do with that one. Like there's, I've heard lots of things. There's lots of things you want to do with your friends and go places, but I've never heard I'm pregnant and it's God's baby. I've never heard that. And then she has to have a conversation with Joseph. Hey, Joseph. You know how we haven't been having sex because we're, you know, we're waiting. Yeah, I, remember, I know. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm, I get it. Yeah, we're not. Wait until marriage. I, yeah, he's all, all, all about that, right? He knows that. And she goes, well, I just want to let you know. I'm pregnant. Okay. Uh, what? Now, Luke, Luke, like in Matthew, the way Matthew records it, the other gospel, one of the other gospels, Matthew records it like J- Joseph has like a total breakdown. Like, okay, well, I guess I got to break up with her. I guess I have to let her go. And I'm pretty much going to, this is going to, this is a big deal, but I'm going to have to let her go. And an angel has to say, no, 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 don't do that. Trust me, this is okay. He has to have a full on encounter. In this case, we don't get much of that. All you get is that you don't really get much of his story. But she has to go to him and say, Hey, trust me, an angel appeared to me and told me some stuff, and, we're, and I'm going to give birth to this, this person, the Lord's Messiah, and isn't that good news? Aren't you so excited about that? And we still get to be married. Oh, okay. We have to imagine, she's going to walk around 
Is she going to be walking around getting a little bit more pregnant as she does, as people would see her going to the well and being around and seeing stuff? And people, have you not, you know, they, they tend to not imagine the most favorable scenario for a situation like that. They don't typically jump to the most, like, uplifting kind of thing. Like, it's not like they went, oh, she's showing a little bit of pregnancy. That's cool. You know what I bet that is? I bet an angel appeared to her and told her that she's going to be giving birth to Lord's Messiah. That's probably what it is. You know, they don't think that, right? I mean, most of the time people imagine the worst case scenario that they could possibly imagine for something they don't know about. I was at our, uh, my daughter's soccer game yesterday, and um, I'm the assistant coach for her team. And the other, the, uh, the other coach of the other team, he's, he starts getting into it with the referee. And we can't really tell what's going on, but they're having a conversation. The, you know, the coach is gesturing like, you know, do one of these. Like, I don't know. What do you, you know, and they're kind of talking and stuff. And so I say to like our coach, like, you know, I'm like, Jason, what's going on? <laughs> Now, lighten up, buddy. Now, you should also know, I have been, I, like nearly every game, a referee has to talk to me about how loud I'm yelling and things like that. And just so you know, like, there is absolutely, I have, I have if any person should not be saying what I'm now saying to this, my own, like, well, the other coach, it's me. Like, hey, lighten up, pal. It's this little kid's game, which I, you know, should be saying. So now, right, so you get what I'm get, getting after. After the game, and we're like, what, what's that guy's deal? Lighten up. I mean, this is so absurd. After the game. That guy's still talking to the referee and the league commissioner. I'm like, oh, my gosh, let it go. So he, he comes, he starts walking towards us. And I'm like, oh, geez. Here it goes. Like, I'm thinking, you know, he thinks, like, one of our kids is, like, elbowing his, you know, his kids in the face or something like that. It's like, you know, I'm, like, waiting for that, like, extreme crazy thing. And he comes up to me and he goes, hey, can I talk to you? And I was like, yes. <laughs> you know, and I'm, like, trying to figure out how do I appear. Like, I don't want to, I don't want, you know, I want to be as gentle as I can, you know. And I'm like, what did I do? And he goes, hey, I just want to talk to you. And I'm like, here it comes. I look at my buddy. I'm like, here it comes. We're just going to get in this big discussion about the score because it's a seven-year-old girl's soccer game or whatever. It's like, here we go. And he goes, hey, I just want to um, ask you something real quick. Um, he goes, well, there's a girl on our team who's, um, oh, she, oh, he goes, first thing is, are, aren't there a couple of the dads on your guys' team who are, are pastors at Mariners? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm like, here it comes, you know, and we're going to get the, like, shouldn't you, a man of the cloth or something like that, you know, be a little bit more, so I expected something like that. <laughs> Do people still talk like that? But I don't know. Anyway, but I'm expecting that kind of thing, and he goes, hey, um, just want to let you know there's a girl on our team, and I'm like, yep, you, she's gonna, you're going to say she got punched in the face by, one of my, by my daughter or whatever, so here it comes, and he just goes, there's a girl on our team who, um, her mom just found out she has cancer. I was wondering if you guys could pray for her. I was like, uh, yeah, we weren't, we weren't saying anything about you or anything else like that. <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't talking about you at all. And he goes, and he goes also, I want to tell you, I, you know, I, I'm sorry that took so long with the referee. I, um, you know, I, I was confused about, there's sometimes the referees in our league, just so you know, some of the referees, they like, they like help coach the kids so they know what to do with some of these things, like how to throw in a ball properly. And so, he, so anyway, this coach is saying, and I was just asking him, you know, is that my job or his, or what should we do? And he got really offended, so I wanted to make sure he knew I wasn't trying to get down his throat, you know? And I was like, yeah, that's what we assumed. We totally thought that's what that was. <laughs> we assumed that. Now, Mary's in a situation where everybody knows. Remember, this is a big public affair. Family, village, everybody knows. We're engaged to be married. Everybody knows this is happening. And they're seeing her begin to show signs of pregnancy. And they probably aren't making up the best story about her. They're probably assuming the worst about her, that somehow or another, it, it, you know, Either Joseph is lame and so she had to go somewhere else because he was so, whatever it was, or that she's just this crazy young little girl who went crazy and did this thing, shamed her whole family and shamed everybody. See, this is a community-shaped thing. And Mary's about to enter into a time in which her yes has a great big cost. Jump ahead to to Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus to the temple. And there they encounter a guy named Simeon. Simeon's a guy who has been told he's going to um, meet the Messiah, God's rescuer for the whole world, before he dies. Which is another motif you see, which is that God tends to fulfill his promises to people at like the very end of their life. <laughs> like over and over again, people are like, God told us we'd have a child, and now we're still waiting and we're really old. And finally, you know, this is the same kind of scenario here, which is Simeon has been told he's going to see God's Messiah, this, the, Jesus, before he dies, and he's old, and he's like, when's that coming? And so this is where Jesus is presented in the temple, and there's Simeon, who this is what happens. Verse 28. Simeon took him in his arms, meaning Jesus, and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, 
as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He's just saying, I can die now. My life has peaked. This is the moment I've been waiting for my whole life. You can dismiss me in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Remember, Jesus' name means that Yahweh is salvation. I've, um, my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your, of your people Israel. So he's saying now to Mary and to Joseph, I've seen what God's promised. This is so good. I've seen you, you be faithful, God. I've seen all these things come together, and this is so good. There will be glory, and there will be God's light in the world, etc. Verse uh, 28. Simon, or Simeon took, took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Oh, sorry, sorry, 33. Just in case you were a little review there, I went back to verse 28. Now we're at 33. Sorry. Uh, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, meaning they were like sort of awestruck and stunned. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary, um, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. In other words, Jesus is going to be a dividing line, a line in the sand for people to have to sort of make some pretty big decisions about. And then he says this, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Jesus is going to be this great thing. He's going to be so awesome. And Simeon is addressing Mary. He's not addressing Joseph, which is what a man would do when he's talking to another man's wife. He would address, him only, address her only through her husband. But Simeon looks right at her and says, and a sword will pierce your soul too. Your son's going to be all of these great things, and yet there's this other thing where he, your own soul is going to be pierced too. Now, at this point, there has to be a little cost analysis. Like, well, I said yes to the, you know, the never-ending throne of David and this forever, you know, God's redeemer person. You know, he's coming and I'm part of that and that's great. But there's, and I've endured already the shame of being pregnant without being married to my own husband. And now I go to present him in the temple and all these great things are said about my kid. And then there's this other thing which says, no, 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 you're also going to have your own soul pierced too. It's just a taste of what's to come. Let's get forward to Luke chapter 4. Jesus has a homecoming. He's been teaching. He's gaining some support. He's gaining all kinds of following. People are getting attracted to his teaching. He's teaching with authority. And here's what it says. He has this homecoming moment. Luke 14, or Luke 4, 14 says this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Now, a lot of things going on here. One of them is he's having his own homecoming. Galilee is the area which he's from. Nazareth is a little like campsite that he lived in or a little trailer park. Now, how many of you guys have been to your own homecoming? Somebody, you've been to a homecoming celebration. Just raise your hand. You went to one of them. You went and saw 10, 15, 20 or whatever it is. Here's what happens at a homecoming. Basically, all you do is you show up and you try to evaluate how much the really cute, fun, and popular people in your school have let themselves go. Like, wow. Just didn't think it mattered anymore, huh? You got kind of chubby. You know, you used to be like kind of this cute, fun, and popular. Now you're kind of like, that's all you're really doing. You're kind of seeing how you measure up. I mean, I know it's shallow, but that's what you do. I mean, everybody works out feverishly for the three months before then, then tries to show up like, I always look like this. You know, like, no, you don't. But this is, that's a homecoming. Now, you're trying to show up and improve, like somehow impress upon people that your life is together and awesome and wonderful. And Jesus has a homecoming. I don't think his motive is the same, but here's what's happening. People are going, Wow, they're amazed by him. They're praising what he's been able to do. He's, everyone praises him for his teaching. They're just super excited about Jesus. And then, so he's increasing in honor, people with reputation, they're loving him. Here's what happens in his own hometown, verse uh, 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So he's reading from Isaiah chapter 61. If you want to check it out, you can look it, out, look it up later. It's the first couple of verses of Isaiah 61. But here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's appointed, anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah 61 is like one of those promises in the book of Isaiah that people are like, this is like the thing God's going to do. 
Because we've been living under captivity for various periods of our history. The Israelites would say, the Hebrew people, have been living under captivity for so long. We've been, as Israelites, we were captives in Egypt. And then we've seen all kinds of people, from the Assyrians to the Babylonians and now the Romans, who now have power over us. And for a Jewish person, this like prophecy means everything. No longer will we feel the oppression of people who are not of us, who are intent on pushing us down. We'll feel God's freedom. We'll feel God's rescue. And we're so excited about that. Now what Jesus says is, he reads to them that prophecy about God's plan for their redemption, their being set free. And he says to them, essentially, I'm the bringer of that future into this world right now. You've been hoping for this thing. I'm bringing it right now. I'm initiating, I'm inaugurating this kind of kingdom stuff in the world. Aren't you guys excited? It's me. I'm bringing it. And they're like, that's not true. We see the Romans. We, uh, we can see, we are, there's been, there's, I haven't heard any, there's no holy army. There's no angels like with laser swords taking people out or whatever. It's just you, I don't, no, I don't think that's right. Because what he's saying is I'm the guy and I'm bringing this in. And here's what they all say. This is what's interesting. Verse 22. All spoke well of him. And we're amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But that's different than we might actually read it. And then they say, isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? Now, we read that like, well, that's kind of surprising. Joseph's son, you know, he's a carpenter's kid. And wow, look what he can do. We read that like that. What's actually happening here is a massive insult. What they're saying is, you're not qualified to be saying these kinds of things. You're just a carpenter's kid. We know the kind of work he does. He's not even that good of a carpenter. I'm making that up. I'm just saying. But, you know, we, you're just a carpenter's kid. You aren't allowed to talk like that. Aren't you just? In other words, it's a way of taking a shot at his honor. You don't come from the right family. And we know that when God works, he's going to come through the right families who have the right reputations, who have everything together, who are the most righteous. That's who God's going to come through. And he's, your family isn't that. You live in that trailer park in Nazareth. It's not you. And then there's this exchange. Jesus catches the insult. If you read the next couple of verses, there's basically this back and forth where Jesus calls him out. And he's like, you're going to miss it. God's here among you and you're going to miss it. And you're no different than the people of our, of our ancestry who missed it when God's prophets were speaking to them. And which is, a, which is a huge insult. He's basically saying you're like those people who God was really kind of ticked off at from way long ago. And then they say, verse 28, check this out. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So they, they're like, well, you don't say that to us in our synagogue in our hometown. Welcome home, Jesus. Now remember, just a few verses ago, Jesus, everyone is praising him for his words and his, his amazing teachings. And now they're like, how dare you say that stuff? We're taking you to the hill and throwing you off. The reason you would take someone to the hill and throw them off is because they were a false prophet. Jesus, this is the most bizarre, I don't even know what this means. The, the whole crowd, however big the crowd is, walks him to the hill. And then it just says he turns and kind of just walks away from them. Like some kind of Jedi power. Just, excuse me, you're not throwing me off the cliff. We want to throw you off the cliff. I don't really want to go off the cliff. I'm walking away. I mean, however he does it, he just walks through these people. There's no real explanation. I mean, there's no, like, he didn't, like, float above them and just, you know, walk. We don't have, all it just says is he walked among them. Like, somehow or another, they couldn't bring themselves to throw him off the cliff, but he just walked right past them. Now, as weird and funny as that might be, he leaves. But there's Mary. And maybe if Joseph's still alive, we don't know, but if Joseph, there's Mary and there's Joseph and there's their son who's claiming all kinds of crazy things. He's the person who said, I'm the bringer of God's future into this world right now. And all the people wanted to throw him off a cliff for being a false prophet. And she's still there. And Joseph's still there. And at this point, they may have other kids, but we don't it's not known at this point whether or not they have other kids. But there they are, sitting there. And imagine the next day when they go to the well or they see each other in the marketplace. And, you know, there's, there's Mary walking, getting water. Hey, guys, how's everybody? Oh, you guys aren't talking to me now, huh? Because of my son. Because of what he did. Remember now, it's not just like here where if one of our kids does something crazy, we all kind of rally around him and go, you know, we're going to pray for them and we're with you. How, heart, how heartbroken you must be. No, 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 no. Back then, when your kid goes crazy, it's because of something you did. And you shamed, your, your family has been shamed and our whole village has been shamed and our whole region has been shamed and you have ruined it for everybody. And so you become someone who's untouchable. 
And the cost of Mary saying yes to Jesus, yes to whatever God wants to do in her life, is beginning to mount up. Because Jesus' decision, the way Jesus is operating, is poisoning her own reputation in the community. And in a place where honor and shame is everything, she's feeling the effects of shame. See, Jesus begins to start making some waves with people. And it's not just that he bears it upon himself. He bears it for his whole family. And his whole family begins to feel the effects. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is, is teaching. He's, he's gaining against a reputation. And he calls some people to be his own followers, his disciples. He gathers 12 of them. And they're all going to follow him around. And the, there begins to be this momentum around Jesus. And Mary is just basically like, I can't, I, we can't have this anymore. Here's what it says in Mark 3. It's on your outline. Then Jesus entered a house. And a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went out to take charge of him. That whole take charge of him is the one word in Greek. It's just the word restrain. For they said, he's out of his mind. Mary and his brothers heard about this. And they said, he's gone crazy. We said yes. I said yes that God's work in my life would be done. It would be, I, I said I would agree to this path that I'd follow him along. And there's then Jesus who was the rescuer of the world and he's gone crazy. He's out of his mind. We've got to hold him back. We've got to tackle him and bring him back home because people are going to kill him. He's gone crazy. Surely for Mary, as she's kind of replaying the whole conversation with Gabriel, back in that moment, Whenever that was, however he appeared to her saying, you're going to give birth to the one who will rescue the whole world. Isn't that a great blessing, favored one? And she's going, yeah, I'll do that. She has to be going, one of us is crazy. Either God is crazy or I am, because this is, this is nuts. Look at Jesus. People keep trying to kill him. He's gone off the deep end, and we don't know what to do with him. There's a cost that's beginning to add up. And then to skip all the way forward to the end of Jesus' life, you have Jesus on the cross. And here's what it says in John 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. John records that at the very end of Jesus' life, the people actually did essentially throw him off a cliff, only it was more humiliating. The Roman execution form of crucifixion was only for people who were not Roman citizens because it was believed to be too serious of an execution form. Because the intent wasn't just to kill someone, it was to humiliate them and put them on display in front of everybody else. So the shame for Mary fully culminates in that moment where it's like, oh my gosh, there's my son whom I so deeply love on the cross and everyone can see and he's dying like a criminal. And this is the kind, this is the kind of execution that only the worst criminals would have. And everyone sees it. Moments later, as John's gospel records, Jesus is stabbed in the side with a spear. And you have to imagine Mary points back to that moment when Simeon at the temple says, and your soul will be pierced too. You ever talk to a mother whose kid is suffering? You can tell in their eyes that their soul has been and there's Mary looking at Jesus going, I can't believe that the cost of the yes for this whole thing has been devastating. And my own soul has been so deeply pierced. I think for a lot of us, whether or not you're new to church or this is your, you know, this is, you've been in church for a long time, you've been connected to Jesus, you've been connected to the Bible, there's a, there's a part of us that gets told a story. That says faith and pain are necessarily sort of inversely proportional. That the more faith you have and the more obedient you are, the less pain you have in your life. That's a very dangerous thing to believe. First of all, if it were true, what we would see in Mary's life is that she's a very faithful person. And clearly her life has not become ease, more easy. It's not become an easier life. The more faithful she's become, it's become probably one of the most difficult, challenging lives you could possibly imagine. Her own soul pierced at the death of her son. For a lot of us, we get the picture that like, hey, following Jesus is just 
the beginning of more blessing and more, more of your life being made smoother and more convenient and easier and simpler. Only what we have here is her life gets more and more complicated and more difficult, and the cost of that, yes, keeps increasing as her life goes on. It's kind of like this. You know, like when you're, it, it, the best way to kind of describe it, this may not be the best, but it's at least some way to describe it. You know when you're kind of moving and you're dating someone and you're kind of moving from just the, we're, we kind of like seeing each other to now we're, we're not sure if we call each other boyfriend and girlfriend yet, but we're kind of in that place. And you both really like each other, but you're not sure what to do. And there's a little bit of you that starts to kind of fudge about the things that you're really into a little bit, kind of just, it's a gray area about stuff. You know, like all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I just love kittens. You might be deathly allergic. I love their little, <laughs> they're my face and they're little, I love them. But you're, now you're just, you want so desperately to this, this girl to like you, you'll say whatever. You know, I love eating all kinds of really spicy food. I just love that. It's the best. Love it. You know, you're going to these restaurants and she's putting more spice in it. And you're like, I love this. This is the best. This is who I am. It's who I want to be. I'm more of that person. And I think in a lot of ways what happens for a lot of us is we've been, we've been told something about Jesus, which is this is a person who is already like you and everything's going to be wonderful. Everything's kind of, he's not going to ask much of you. You guys are already on the same page. This is so great. And yet we find this. The yes has a cost. Yes is expensive. It doesn't mean that it's not worth it. It just means that it's expensive. You see, there's a story that kind of married, you don't get to see if you just read the book of, well, you get to see a little bit of it, book of Luke. But what you really get is in the beginning of the book of Acts, which is basically Luke part two. And the disciples are gathered. They're all kind of, they, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And the news is spreading throughout. People are pretty excited about, oh my gosh, Jesus rose from the dead. This is unbelievable. His body, not just like, like a spirit camp, like his whole body is not in the grave. This is amazing. And they're all getting together and Jesus has gathered his disciples and they're kind of like all excited. Like, now what do we do, Jesus? And he, he, he gives them some instructions, tells them the Holy Spirit's coming. They're like, we don't really get it. He's like, that's okay. And immediately he like floats up into the clouds and they're like, now what do we do? Like, I guess we go home. Like, that's it. They're kind of like, there's Jesus. He's there. We're all together, and he's just up to the clouds. And we're, now we're sitting there. And they go back to Jerusalem, and here's what happens. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs into the room where they were staying. Those present, here's the disciples, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, these are the women disciples who follow Jesus, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Remember, not too long ago, they were trying to tackle him and restrain him because he'd gone crazy. And maybe in some way, the rising from the dead kind of made a pretty convincing argument that Jesus may not have been totally crazy. And there they are in this same room going, oh my gosh, what he said was actually true. And they're about to have the Holy Spirit come upon them and the, the church is about to explode. Which means that there's a high cost to a yes. And while we don't always get to see the way things God tends to work, if you're with us last week, we said that God is at work and he's faithful to his promises, but not always like we thought. And here's Mary, having lived a very difficult yes having seen her choice to follow what God said be played out over the next couple of years of her life, the next couple of decades, which mostly did, paid off in what was shame and pain. And yet there's this redemption here, that through her the whole world would be blessed, that God would raise his own son from the grave, that God would redeem the whole world. And she says it's worth it. But it's still super confusing and painful in the midst of it. I want you to see a story, and then we'll kind of, we'll take a cham- some time to respond in a moment, but I want you to see a story from friends of mine who have a very difficult yes that they've undertaken, and their journey to get there has been painful and confusing, and yet God is using it in a powerful way. So you check out my friend's story. Here it is. Really had a burning desire to be parents, and 
for me, it was just because of my brokenness and uh, didn't have great examples of parenting, family, growing up. And Gino and I, in deciding what was next for us as parents, we uh, actually weren't on the same page in this journey of seeking God's guidance for us. And that was really a tough time for us. The, the tough part about it was not only the tough decision, but the fact that we were not communicating about it. I frankly put my head in the sand. We eventually landed on the same page. We went to Kenya and Gino heard God's voice and so he said, step into doing Safe Families to see what God has for you. And Safe Families is a ministry that allows us to take in kids with families that are in crisis. We, um, we did get to host some different children in crisis situations. We came across uh, three girls and their mom and have been a part of their story. Sadly, in July, they ended up in a group home in Costa Mesa. And as soon as we heard that was happening, we were on the phone and we were calling the social workers and the emergency line and saying, get those girls here in our house. We have to have them in our big group home. And uh, it took about six weeks, but ultimately, they uh, came to live with us in this great big huge home that God gave us, which we didn't even ask or pray for, but he provided with extra bedrooms. And so um, now we are a family of five, um, officially as our foster parents. God has just grown our marriage and, and we've been united in this on a different level than we had before. And um, we have a confidence that we didn't have before in God's faithfulness to us. We don't know how the story is going to end. We know there'll be joy and pain no matter what happens. And that God's got us covered. And that He is going to use this story to shape us. Our hope is that we represent Him well. Yeah, you can clap. <laughs> um, I love what Gino says at the end of that video. It's it's so it's just it's like personal for me. I remember you know, Gino and I were playing basketball together, and he was talking about dating Barb. You know, and so it's just fun like to see this now. But at the end of the video, what he says is, "I don't know how the story's going to end." And he says, "There will be joy and there will be pain." And he says, I know that God's, caught, God's got us covered and that somehow God, this is going to, somehow this whole thing is going to shape us. There is a cost to a yes. There is a high cost to a yes. And one of the things I want you to know that I'll, my commitment to you is, I will tell you the truth as much as I can tell, I mean, as much as I know it, to, like whatever it is, I'm going to tell you it. And in this case, what I'm saying is, if you have heard at some point in your life, whether you are investigating Jesus or you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, some of us have believed a very hideous untruth, which is that if the reason why you're experiencing difficult things in your life, you believe that that's because you're not faithful enough. You believe that there's a one-to-one -one connection between not faithfulness and difficult things in your life. Now, there are difficult things that are a result of things that we make that are bad choices. That's different. But if this story, if Mary's story is anything, it shows us that people who have incredible faith encounter incredible trials. That there is a high cost to a yes. And if you're investigating Jesus, I want you to understand, it is so definitely worth it. It is so definitely worth it to follow and to walk with Jesus. But it is not easy. And what you saw with Gino and Barb is this story where they said, God is at work in our lives in a way that has been really, really difficult for us, and yet he is redeeming something that we did not even know, and it's, we don't even know how it's going to end. And we know there's joy, and we know there's going to be pain. What I want to do is this. Regardless of where you are on your own sort of faith journey, I want you to consider something. I want you to first hear me say this, that I acknowledge that there are those of us in here who suffer from a broken heart. We run the risk in our own faith of losing heart, and we wonder in the midst of that pain if God has actually left us or abandoned us. And I want to let you know that pain does not negate faith. 
And then if anyone has condemned you for experiencing difficult times, as you, well, if you just believe more that those things would go away, then you could just silence them right now in your own mind. What I want to do is this. I want to give you a chance to be prayed for, and here's how we're going to do it. If you've never done this with us before, it's, how, it's really simple. I just want to give you a chance to stand up in a moment. I'll tell you when. Just acknowledge that I need God to show up in a big way. I'm suffering, and I need God to rescue me, and I don't know why it's been going on this way, but I just need God to rescue me. And here's what will happen is people will stand up, and then people around, those people who are standing, I want you to just put a hand on their shoulder, on their arm. Let them know one of the things that God says to us in the Bible is that he is close to the brokenhearted. And one of the ways we embody that is by just simply putting a hand on them. You don't have to hug them. You don't have to say anything. It just lets them know that they're not alone. And so if that's you, if you go, I'm in danger of losing heart. I've been walking with Jesus or I've never walked with him, but I'm in danger of losing heart and giving up. Would you just stand right where you are? And we're going to pray for you. That's it. Just some folks standing Anybody standing? Just make sure you put a, put a hand next to them on their arm, on their shoulder, let them know they're not alone. Anybody else? If you need to move, move to get close to them, go ahead and do so. Just put, just put a hand on their shoulder. These are people who are really suffering who need to know they're not alone. So just let them know that they're not alone. You can stand with them, put a hand next to them. Anybody else? There's some people in the back over there. Anybody else? People standing. Folks here. I'm not going to ask you to say anything out loud. There's not going to be. It's just simply an acknowledgement that I need, I need God right now. That's all that that is. Anybody else? Yeah. Let's pray for these people who are in danger of losing heart. Father, we know that you walk closely with those who suffer, that you have a really clear bias for people who are the underdogs, who are suffering, who are in pain. Jesus, we pray that you would be made known to these people. And while we have probably a lot of emotion that's connected in some way or another to what we're experiencing right now, the people that are standing, we know that every one of us in this room has been in that place, at least to some degree, before. And we can acknowledge that there is loneliness and sadness. So Jesus, we pray that you would be made known. We pray that your power would be evident. We pray that whatever it is that is breaking their hearts, whatever it is that would cause them to lose their own heart, whatever it is that would cause them to maybe second-guess their yeses, but be overwhelmed by your presence, Jesus. God, we know that you restore the brokenhearted, that you draw near to them and that you restore. And so, Jesus, we call upon that power now for those who stand and for those who would stand in the future. Jesus, for those who would stand but can't now because it's too overwhelming, we pray for them as well. Jesus, we pray all these things in your powerful name, the name of Jesus, amen.